This episode of the Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by Tether. Get smart, get tethered. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here again with my colleague, official agitator friend and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Buggleton. Say hello, sir Yoda. Hello there. So interesting, one of my favorite, favorite topics, one of the topics I blog about the most is IoT and technology in buildings because the epic resistance of the property industry to change, I think these are the things that are going to change it, right? So it should be an interesting conversation today. So today's guest started his career in New Zealand, honing his business development skills before moving up to Canada. Good move uh, to work in the power sector, including (laughs) time with PowerLink, Spark Power, and Bullfrog. Power. Now, with over 22 years' experience, Glenn Spry is applying his skills as the CEO and president of Sensor Suite, the leading Internet of Things company focusing on the optimization and efficiency of HVAC systems in small and mid market buildings for real estate investment trusts and other portfolio managers. Welcome to the show, Glenn. Well, welcome. Now, that, that sounds like more of a mouthful than, um, than I'm used to delivering. So, yeah, thank you for the intro. <laughs> hey, listen, we're always uh, like to hear our guests' stories, so tell us yours. So let's, let's go back a few years. My mother was incredibly disappointed when I turned down a law at Auckland University to play professional golf. I ended up playing so well that I needed to get a real job. And since then, I found myself, uh, let's just say, drawn into the world of sales. Managed to uh, embody, I would consider this to be, we'll say, professional ADD. I have uh, worked everything from advertising and media, um, finance, through to environmental fuel technologies and ended up landing in the energy sector in New Zealand. And uh, we'll we'll say that uh, sometimes you got to kiss a few frogs before you find your prince. And I think I've landed on that now. Nice. Nice. So tell us about how you ended up working your way into the sensor suite uh, gig. What's that all about? Uh, look, mate, it's it's really the culmination of um, you know the the energy experience that I've I've had over the last decade now. So I think yeah, cutting my teeth in uh, the energy utility space in New Zealand for Genesis Energy, a gen tailor down there, so a, a utility that runs generation assets and the and a um, retail front to that as well. Now we were in the pursuit of trying to figure out what was going to happen to the energy industry, and everything for me started to point towards the fact that we were going to see a convergence of technologies really culminating at the grid edge. So at all behind the meter. And for me, that sent me off on a bit of a journey to, to gain you know, experience in all those little areas, those little black boxes of the energy space. So I, I ticked off the box with the uh, the utility world, moved up here to Canada and um, jumped into a nice little startup out of the Mars Cleantech Ventures and PowerLink, which was a combined heat and power company, a cogent company. And that really um, opened my eyes to what that, that distributed energy resource world um, was doing. Uh, following that, a nice little bit of experience over there at Spark Power, which really brought the, the, the services component in. So everything from high, medium, low, uh, high, medium and low voltage sort of sectors and, and 
it was just these little pieces of the energy industry that you know I knew the basics of, but didn't really have that, that depth of knowledge that uh, was really going to set me on a good course. Following my departure from Spark, I was lucky enough to have a round of golf with someone who said, hey, have you heard of these guys from Sensor Suite? And I'm like, well, I, the name rings a bell, but I couldn't figure out why. And uh, they said, yeah, well, they're looking for an interim CEO. I think you should go and have a chat to them. Now, I, I went into what I thought was going to be a chat. It turned out to be the first uh, five-panel <laughs> interview. So, um, yeah, we'll just say, <laughs> yeah, surprise. <laughs> embodying that lucky than good philosophy. Really, it, the, the IoT game for me, it was that last sort of frontier of the energy transition that, that I really need to gain some experience in. But it was also, for me, the, the, the bit that really drove home. It was, it was the glue that brought everything together. So incredibly excited to, to take the helmet uh, at Sensor Suite and really, really excited to, to stake our claim in, uh, in what's going to be the energy transition from here on. That's interesting because I've worked sort of in different places in the world and one thing that's pretty consistent, certainly in Western countries, is that the energy grid is really a 1950s, 1960s phenomenon, right? As it sits at the moment and it needs upgrading. If you're lucky, uh, <laughs> like it, it's it's based on a 140 year old design schematic, right? It is when our sort of grid was really first put into play. The, the primary mode of transport was the horse and buggy. Right. You know, to put some perspective around it, people could be forgiven for thinking that we're actually you know we're in the the, the Tesla age of the of the grid. The fact that it's not, I think we're we're actually probably more akin to it's probably the Model T Ford. We've probably just got to the point where we've productionized it. The fact is that when we look at what's coming down the pipe at that aged infrastructure, at that aged design schematic, you've, you've got a, a, an armada of technology just all pointed at taking their, their share of it now. Right, yeah. So, I mean, the, again, the problem with the grid is it's old. It's been mm. a long time. Yep. It has companies around it that are very entrenched in terms of what they do in terms of labour, management of labour, mm. servicing of the grid, keeping the grid going, right? To interrupt that or change that is a very difficult thing. Yes, it is. And I think we've, we've got to look now at sort of those forces that are evolving this market and the, and the energy transition. If we look at the status quo, you've got, I might be a, a little blunt here, but there's an acronym called Doug, the Dugs of this world, the dumb old utility guys. Now, <laughs> you know, um, there'll be some people out there who will listen to this and go, Oh, I don't know any Dugs. Well, those are the Dugs. <laughs> the, the fact is, it's it really is like it, it's the guys out there that I'll be um, a little bit mean to. They're, they've got their ticket to the retirement train. They're used to the, the ways of old, and they're just waiting to, to clip the ticket and get off. The fact is that the the technology suite that's coming in today, there's not not just sort of at, at various levels of sort of commercialization or down the, the path of being sort of market ready, they're here. They're just there in the optimization stage. Really two mindsets I see in the old guard. Number one is protectionism play. It's I'm, I'm going to preserve what I have at all costs and they will, they, will be, they will obstruct any attempt to integrate with that system that will ultimately erode value. And then you've, you've got just that. described the whole construction industry in one sentence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> preserve and obstruct. Yeah, wait, well, yeah. I tell you, what, it's, it's alive and kicking in the energy industry as well. The other side of it is when you look at the, the somewhat more progressive companies, and there, there are a few out there that are trying to you know, figure out what their, their place is in this new world of energy. But they're shackled because the, the amount of money you need to spend on R&D to get up to the level that businesses like mine are at is, is just cost prohibitive. And yeah. 
But notwithstanding the fact that when you do do that, you want to return out of it. And well, I'm already three steps ahead. So I'm the one who, either, hey, it might be an exit strategy one day, but the fact is that I'm just one of thousands of companies in this space that have all, all had their own unique IP that is designed to do one thing, and that's extract value out of the demand side of the energy equation. Mm-hmm. So Can you give us an example of that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, the, the best example running around the world right now is, um, is California. I mean, you, you look at... Um, the notifications that, that came out of PG&E at the last fire season, you know, quite frankly, now you've got nearly two and a half million uh, customers in that network who were told, so we really don't want to start any more fires. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to turn off your power when there's high fire risk. And everyone sort of swallowed their, <clears throat> oh, well, what do you mean? And then they find out that they said, expect to have power outages last somewhere between eight hours and seven days. Now, what we're seeing here is you're seeing the culmination of, of, of a, we'll call it a litany of, of poor decision-making from the past that ended up where you know, we've got the campfire that, that happened and, and it was a horrible thing to happen down there. But off the back of that, now you have millions of Californians who can no longer trust or rely on continuity of supply of energy. So what do you do? You sit in that position and you start looking at, well, okay, if they're not going to do it, what, what can I do that's going to improve my resilience and reliability myself? How can I be more self-reliant? And jump onto the Google machine, have a quick look, and what do you see? You see Sunrun, you see SunPower, you see Generate, all slamming that area with home storage, rooftop solar, EVs, mm. EV paired with rooftop solar, EV paired with storage, et cetera, et cetera. But what they're really, really banking on is the fact that you're going to have a consumer shift. As much as California is a great example today, you have to look around the world and you can see the lessons um, you know, that should have been learned from many other jurisdictions. Australia is a great example with 40% penetration rooftop solar in the residential space. 40% of all households in Australia have rooftop solar. Now, I remember being back in 2013, 13-14 at an um, energy conference in Australia where a utility executive of uh, an Australian utility stood up and said, last year I had $2,600 a year customers. Those customers that put solar on, I make $600 a year out of those now. Now, that, that's a massive drop in revenues. And when you start talking about 40% penetration, that, that becomes quite, a, quite an interesting equation for a lot of those executives. But now compound that with what's happening today is all of those systems are now being paired with storage. So that $600 a year customer is now somewhere around the 100 to 150 in fixed charges per annum. Now, that, that's, that's a paradigm shift at a utility level, but it was driven by consumer demand. I think it bring it all, all back is I think what we're seeing is the consumer is no longer viewing the energy portion of the utility bill as something that they just have to pay now. I can see that that, that is by and large the way it is still today. But in those jurisdictions where either a, a government program or the environment has pushed them into a corner, they start looking for options. And uh, right now there's no shortage of options today. And, and gee whiz, over the next couple of years, that's just going to grow exponentially. Now, I, I see that trend mostly because I travel a lot. And But here in Canada, you know, when I landed here, I immigrated here in 2007. I might as well set my clock back to 1973. I mean, <laughs> I see things here I haven't seen in decades in Europe. And taking your example there of the utility companies, you know, the revenues drop in by magnitudes off, right? Mm. So if you've got a legacy of union employees and defined benefit pensions, how do you cope with that? I think even if you got to a situation where you could have 
100% solar power and no juice, they're going to charge you what you used to get charged anyway for access to the grid or something because they've got to pay these pensions. Absolutely. And it's not just the pensions. We, we now get into the, uh, the, the, the conversation topic around stranded assets. Who yeah. wants to be the person who sits there and goes, oh, those transmission lines are no longer worth what they once were. Who's going who's to you know, swallow that? But to your point, the market itself here is, is unique. And as, as much as it's quite a reliable system, you know, continuity of supply is quite high. Yeah. Um, I would go so far as to say I don't think you could design a more dysfunctional system if you set out to design a dysfunctional system. Yeah, and it's, and it's the playing. wins, Canada wins. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and look, I've, I've been lucky enough to be at conferences over the US and, and different provinces in Canada, and the common theme through it is make sure you don't do what they did. Because, yeah, and it's, it's, uh, look, it's sad in one way, but, but equally when you, when you look at the – it's just, it's just tough to be connected because you, you're not really the master of your destiny here. The fact is, if we if we boil it down to what's happening in this you know, post COVID nineteen world, maybe the presumptive to call it post at the moment. However, you just look at the, the way that people are consuming energy differently here in Ontario. Every day now is a Saturday, when in terms of the demand profile. Now that's a good thing because now you're actually at a position where you've got you know a fair amount of capacity there in reserve. The problem is the way that that you know the global adjustment system is set up here. Even in previous seasons where it was, you know, um, chasing the peaks was, uh, you know, highly sought after, you could have the difference between the first and second peaks only 20 to 30 megawatts. That was predominantly driven by residential HVAC when people drove home and turned everything on to cool the house down. If the majority of people are already at home, you don't have those peaks. So now the difference between the top uh, peak and the second, third and fourth could be as little as three, four or five megawatts. Now, you can't chase those. Like that, that, that's just that, that's just just not feasible to do it. So it, there, there are some unique challenges in being connected to this market. I mean, look, the, the bonus is, by and large, it is, it's a very reliable market. Yeah. Unfortunately, you can't bank on the, the cost of connection because it is such a fluid beast. And right now, the, the costs are baked in. Um, even though we're consuming less money, you know, there's the old sort of Vegas adage, the house always wins, right? There's a bill that needs to be paid. So that mm-hmm. cost is just now spread over a small volume. Uh, and we're seeing already now somewhere in the vicinity of a 20 to 25 increase in the cost of being connected to the system today. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Robert, Robert, we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> and I'm, and it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep, they're an innovator in smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean Sensor Suite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know, another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Gotta go to sensorsuite.com or call 1 855 773 6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the Edifice Complex podcast and listen to Sensor Suite CEO Glenn Spry. And now back to the show. I've got some friends in California who've tried to put on uh, rooftop solar. And it mm-hmm. got to the point where so many obstacles were being thrown in front of them connection fees, we're not coming for another six months, just hang on, you know. It was just. I mean, when you're in the industry, you see, you know what that is. Yeah. You think, you know, scale that up. How does that end? <laughs> Not yeah. well, to be honest. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, what you're basically seeing there is 
the fact that you've, you've got so much technology that is maturing and has matured to a point where it, it just makes sense to purchase it. And yeah. what you're seeing is um, how far behind the eight ball so many of our dugs are. Yeah. You know, and you can only play that, um, you know, that obstructive play so long before you, you, you can no longer catch up. And the fact is that the rooftop solar industry, solar industry by and large, uh, the storage industry, you know, the IoT industry, the, the power to hit. You've seen battery storage drop by, was it 80% over the last five years? Which is the killer, killer application, right? Storage is everything yeah. here. That's it. That's exactly it. Yeah, because you need to bring all of these assets together. Now, it's kind of like the analogy I use is that the industry right now is filled with soloists. So you've got a lot of people who have just you know, created some IP and they've really they've nailed it. They have. But we need an orchestra. You know, we, we need to, all these little pieces to come together to, to really provide that killer value proposition. Um, the things that influenced my decision to, to join Census Suite was I saw Census Suite not only being able to play their role at, you know, in the orchestra, but the platform that we've built really comes together as the, the conductor. And uh, mm-hmm. I think you know, that's where the true opportunity lies. And you know, going back to the, uh, the uh, utility brethren, a number of them are going to be caught short when all this technology comes together because, quite frankly, the whole resilience and reliability the idea here is if I have, we'll call it just you know, five kilowatts on my roof, I've got a 10, 15 kilowatt battery on my garage wall. Fingers crossed, I have one of the new Rivian 4x4s in my garage with a 180 kilowatt hour battery. At what point am I worried about resilience where, uh, you know, two or three weeks I have continuous power supplied to my house from my truck, let alone what's on the wall in my garage, let alone how it's being replenished through those solar panels? At what point do I just go, I don't need to be grid connected? And that's, you know, so looking back at those, those earlier points around stranded assets, it's going to happen a lot faster and it's going to be driven by consumers rather mm. than, you know, the, we'll call it the, the somewhat monopolistic utilities that um, have usually run the show. My theory is if, say, it got to the point where there was a, on aggregate, a large number of people who wanted to be disconnected because they, they had all these things going, I actually believe the government will pass a law and make it illegal for safety reasons. You have to be on the grid case of emergencies, therefore you owe us $250 a month and thank you. Wow. I'm going to go with this. It's probably going to be done a, a lot smarter and a lot... Uh, Passive-aggressively because we're in Canada, yeah. right? Be They'll put it in yeah. your taxes, your property taxes. They'll yeah. find yeah. a way. That's yeah. it. So it, it's going to find its way into either the tax base or the rate base, um, but yeah. that will be the, the option of last resort. Um, yeah. The first option will be when it comes to connection charges on your current bill, insert name here of what sort of you know what what line item they're going to throw on it yeah. but it, the fact is that we're already seeing it now under the the guise of uh, you know, capacity charges so you may decide to go off off grid air quotes because i don't think anyone's going to truly cut the cable just yet yeah but then they will bill you a prorated amount for the single largest consumption hour in a calendar year so if you decide to have a birthday party, invite everyone over and throw all the lights on, it's really cold, throw all the heaters on, and that might be, okay, late Jan. If that's the one hour that you have your largest consumption period, that will set the benchmark for your demand charges for the balance of the year. That's a veiled way of ensuring that you cover your infrastructure costs. And if we look here at the LDC fraternity here, look, again, by and large, the, the system is, is well put together. It's certainly not a money-making machine. You know, so they, they, they don't have cash reserves to compete against a lot of this sort of stuff. And at the end of the day, they're, they're remunerated for the amount of assets they have in field. 
if you start watering down the value of those assets, those businesses are going to run into trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's just a fact, unfortunately, I think going back to the consumer again, that the consumer out there is just getting their head around the options that they have. When it becomes mainstream, when you start getting, well, when the, the marketing machine that supports the, the decarbonization of our grids really kicks into gear, all of a sudden the options that you didn't know you had are going to be pushed right in front of, you, in front of your face. Yeah. So it's just yeah. going to accentuate it. So yeah. there are some interim measures I think that the system operators can deploy that will protect the near term, but the end game for me, that story has been written. Glenn, is there a demographic story that's tied into all of this? Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, you, you, you have to concede that it's enough a middle-class game at the moment if you want to be talking around EV, grid defection, PV panels, that sort of stuff. Mm. And yeah. it is, you know, it, the fact is if you've got some cash in the bank and you, and you want to be the coolest kid on, you know, on the block, you throw some panels up on your roof and you buy yourself a Tesla, right? And, and well, everyone's going, wow, look at that. That car makes no noises. It drives down the road. There is no real business case for that right now. Because the fact is that, that, that there's, a, there's a fashion value to it that I think most people mm. are, are really going on. But I'm not taking away from the fact that you know, there are some eco-conscious people out there who believe it's the right thing to do. And I'll put my hand up and say that I've done it. And I do think it's the right thing to do. But the fact is that when you start to peel away, you realize that there's real energy poverty out there already. The people who can't actually pay their bills and are really struggling to, to just keep the lights on and keep the heat on today. Going back to the, the whole thing, the, the system operator or the, um, the house always wins. If you just pull more and more people off that grid, it's just the poor people at the end of it. And that's yeah. literally and figuratively poor people at the end of it left with the bill. And unfortunately, I think that will then accentuate a lot of that rate basing uh, or tax basing of those uh, stranded asset value costs. So where does government come into this? Because obviously at some point, they're going to realize that there's just no way that that, that population base can support these stranded assets. It's just not going to happen. Well, we're hearing some interesting whispers now. We have to be conscious that there's a pre and post COVID scenario here. The fact is a post COVID scenario, there there appears to be, uh, well, there are whispers now of a pretty substantial infrastructure play around renewables, around energy efficiency, and and the programs that would ultimately support that. We're hearing a number of um, sort of older programs that were mothballed and now being pulled off the shelves. So I think you're going to see at a federal level, there'll be certainly some tailwinds thrown behind that we'll call the, the, the new energy sector. But that comes at a pretty big cost if you're sitting on a gas-fired power plant, if you're sitting on a coal-fired, I mean, who's still doing that? But, um, you know, the fact is that when you look at those assets, you're going to have an infrastructure fund designed at its heart to remove the value of those assets because it's going to drive, again, everything back to the, to the grid edge. So it's going to be um, really interesting to see how that plays out. But the, the fact is, at a, there's going to be a, a world of pain for a lot of businesses in the next sort of five to 10 years, because this is not something that's going to play out and, and sort of resolve itself in, in two to three years. I think the foundations are going to be set in the next three to five years. But we're talking a 10, 15, 20 year rollout of this technology and at a global level. I'm not just sort of you commenting here in Canada or the US, but the, this is a story that's playing out across the globe. The good thing is if you're smart enough to, to look a little further afield in your backyard, you will see plenty of good examples of, of good policy that has been written to support the transition. Equally, I think um, you can sort of say there's no one ever let good decision get in the way of bad policy. We've seen that equally play out in many jurisdictions as well. I think we could be well-placed, but there's going to be some pain points uh, coming down the pipe pretty soon. Yeah, I was, going to, I was going to say, so obviously there's going to be tension created between those countries that ultimately throw up their hands and say, okay, look, at this, the end of this story is already written. Let's just jump into it. 
and make this happen. And then there's going to be other countries that are going to be holdouts. And so where do those, what, what happens to those tensions? Like what's, what's the, you know, the domino effect of, of the tension that's created with those that adopt and those that don't. Look, and I don't want to get into the um, sort of the provincial politics of this, but I'll be able to use this for one of the last times, given I've been in Canada for four years, right? But watching <laughs> this play out as a spectator, the the energy industry, and it's interesting because when I whenever I hear the energy industry now, I for some reason I exclude oil and gas. <laughs> I don't know why, but I've just I've already pivoted to this new energy reality. But it's really highlighting that we we were addicted to to big energy, yeah, and. We're going to go through some withdrawal symptoms that are not going to be pretty for economies. And you, know, you just have to look at where um, oil prices went you know, back into March, I mean, into positive territory, uh, sorry, negative territory. That's a paradigm shift that you could never have predicted. But it drives now decision-making because I think it's really highlighted a lot of the fallibilities in the sector. There's no way we're going to pivot to, to using um, electricity for all our cars in the next 12 months. That's just not going to happen. But... We may actually see um, off the back of this that the big energy industry is supported somewhat by, by soft prices. The energy transition was banking on the fact that energy prices were going up. You know, if you look at the business cases for EVs as an example, and well, the F-150 EV that was going to be launched next year, I say once, it's now being canned. But that was going to go out with a 180 kilowatt hour battery in it. It was going to go out with about 35 moving parts. That plays out if you're if you're a fleet manager and you're looking at a business case between an ICE vehicle and that, you're looking now at the F-150 petrol version and going, hmm, three and a half thousand moving parts, guzzles gas. Yes, it is cheaper, but my OPEX costs are huge compared to, say, an electric vehicle. The fact is that with cheaper gas prices, those business cases come back. You know, they, 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 start, they start to get a little closer because yeah. the, the capital cost of an EV is higher. Right now, I would even say, though, with, with some of the new um, EVs that are coming out, it's a no-brainer for a, even for a, a fleet manager to go, look, 80% less OPEX, 2 to 3x on your rolling road life of that vehicle. It's to say that I'm going to pay a 20% premium for that vehicle. It's still a no-brainer because the life of the, the, the asset is just – the fundamentals are so much different. But if gas drops by 30, 40, 50%, it just, it just gets them to hang on just that little bit longer. So we could see a small delay in some aspects of the energy transition off the back of what we've seen post-COVID. But again, I think the, um, the technology development curves of those technologies, are, you know, they're nowhere near complete. And so referencing that storage had dropped 80% in the last five years, it's forecast yeah. to drop another 40 to 60 in the next three. You know, I was just thinking that my brain was rattling around there. That's what that noise was in the background. Um, but, you know, everything you said, I can actually see starting to happen, but it's so deflationary and also the impact on jobs. Just take yeah. the, the F-150 example, right? Mm. You know, an order of magnitude reduction in maintenance and moving parts. Mm. How many jobs evaporate with that in servicing? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, we, we have big guns. Yeah. Situation, right? Well, was that another one? <laughs> <laughs> and Ben Affleck and Bruce Willis are not coming. <laughs> yeah, it, look, it, it does. It's a really good line there, Adam, because the, the fact is that there's there's a whole socioeconomic spin to the energy transition. Yeah. When you start looking at even the natural iteration of of EVs as to autonomous vehicles, and you see that with all the the, the latest yeah. EVs out there, they basically drive themselves anyway. But you move then into autonomous trucks. Now, truck drivers in the U.S., by, by percentage, are the, the, the largest group of 
professionals in the US. Yeah. If you if you turn all those those long haul trucks into autonomous EVs, what do you do with six seven million truck drivers who whose skill sets now are just redundant? Mm. You know, and that's that, that's just one piece of it. The, the other side of the coin is you you're also building an industry. You're also yeah. building a whole new industry off the back of it. And there's some really interesting commentary around how even with that transition playing out, that you know, we'll say the good, the bad, and the ugly, you've got even just the, the fundamentals of even my car. If I move to EV, my OPEX goes down. You know, my rolling road life is longer. So the money that I was spending is, you know, is now just only on wiper blades and tires. It's no longer yeah. the maintenance of the vehicle. So I've freed up a whole bunch of capital just in my budget because I'm not spending fixing an antiquated technology. So you start to free up money in other areas. But um, yeah, it doesn't get us away from the fact that there are going to be some some pretty significant losers in this scenario. It's just going to be interesting to see who the winners are going to be. I think about in terms of the conversion for the larger projects seem to be quite easy to get my head around. But when you're talking about Let's just talk about North America. We're mm-hmm. talking hundreds of millions of residential properties that are running gas furnaces and gas boilers. Like this, this transition, we're not talking, I mean, this is going to be a lifetime of transition. This oh, isn't yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely is. But then you've, you've just got to look at some of those um, early markets and I'll pick Generac out here. You know, this is a company that was founded in residential generation technology powered by gas and, and fuel. They bought themselves an energy storage company. They bought themselves a residential energy storage company because they thought that's where this industry was moving. The fact is, and I'll come back to the energy transition now and the the effects of the decarbonization thing. I know I've dwelled on this a little bit, but it's going to be uncool to power your house with gas. And that's where I said the buying decisions are going to be impacted by not just the economics of how much is it going to cost me to get off gas. It's... I don't want to be on gas because how my Instagram pics or my Facebook pics or whatever this you know shows me as a someone who's not really living out that that ethos of an eco warrior. You provide them with those tools, they'll pick them up, and then they're, they're not going to use those sort of the, the classic sort of decision making. Oh, how much is it going to cost? It's going to last me ten years. What am I going to buy next? It's just no, I want to look cool. So it's it's going to be an interesting environment, but yeah, it's it's not going to happen in five years. Um, yeah. The technology will develop in five years. You know, five to ten max is when you're going to have that that residential scale technology actually reach a point where it's not you're not paying a premium over and above your existing connections. It's actually going to be the same thing as we're seeing now with um, both transmission connected plants in, in in the US and certain jurisdictions. It makes no sense to continue to run a combined cycle gas generator that's you know transmission connected over a new build of solar storage. You just wouldn't do it. The, the short run marginal cost just doesn't make any sense. We're just going to see that slowly work its way into the grid edge to the consumer, to the residential consumer. And when it gets there, when it actually makes business sense, commercial sense, on top of it being cool, yeah, that's, that's when you start to see the hockey stick adoption. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Robert, I have questions. Why aren't our buildings more like cars? Shouldn't our buildings warn us if something is wrong and could impact our health and safety? Why can't our buildings tell us how efficiently they're working? Why, 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 why? <laughs> well, they fit, Adam, and they can, you know? Our philosophy is designed for people, good buildings follow. 
this whole indoor environmental quality thing is becoming real important all around the world. Well, Tether have developed a mobile access property identity engine, and that enables landlords and property managers to monitor indoor environmental quality metrics plus energy consumption. It's all about making better decisions based on real world information. Get smart, get tethered. For more information, go to tether.co.nz. And you can also hear from Tether CEO Brandon Van Blurk on our June 2020 episode of the Edifice Complex podcast. And now, back to the show. Is there any play here for community-based combined heat and power systems? So there'll still be a gas oh, yeah. demand, mm-hmm. but the power generation is more local as opposed to at a plant. You're never going to get away from the fact that we're in the age of gas today. Yeah, the age of gas will give way to the age of lithium or the age of storage or whatever it might be. But the fact is, you've got to look at this. Goes back to one of the you know, my earlier days in the um, in the energy industry, where I think I, I saw a presentation put up on screen that they said we waste fifty four percent of all energy we produce. And first of all, I'm like that, that's got to be a typo. That's just that's stupid. Yeah, no, that's, do that? It yeah. turns out that that's on the low side. So the fact is, when you look at the upstream generators, the the gas and the coals, the thermal generators, there's a huge amount of wasted energy at that level. Now, having had experience in the co-gen space, when you look at a a highly efficient um, combined heat and power unit, I mean, you're in the high 80s to early 90% efficiency. It just makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm very familiar with the graph that you're talking about, and and most countries produce them. You know, they're a Sankey drawing. We say we say when the Sankey drawings are done poorly, we call them a Skanky drawing. <laughs> but but 54% is lost energy, and but one of those things that the graph doesn't describe is the quality of that that energy we call ectergy. And so mm-hmm. we can say like even even the energy that does get used, even if it's done at a high level of energy efficiency, maybe even Let's just take it at a small scale, numbers that people can typically understand, where you mm. might be getting 94%, 95% out of, a, say, a furnace or a boiler. Mm. But, and that's at an energy efficiency level. But at an energy efficiency level, we're only down, like around, we're down around 17%. Because mm. the, the quality of the energy that gets converted, which is combustion, is incredibly high, 3,400 degrees Fahrenheit, 1,700 yeah. degrees C, right? So when we say 54% of that energy is lost, we're only talking about the energy use itself, but not the work that's also lost. And so that mm. graph overstates the dire straits that we're actually in when we use combustion-based systems. Agreed. And uh, like it, I think you touched on an interesting point there because even your ability to generate energy, no matter how efficient it is, now you get into the efficiency of consumption. Because they go hand in hand, right? And I think that that really does underline a lot of my philosophy on on where this transition is moving and why. You know, at, at Sense Suite right now, we're we're in the pursuit of building energy efficient grid resource buildings, buildings that are highly efficient in their day to day running, but also are connected to the system to provide support, you know, to provide ancillary services. The hardest challenge, and this might be going back to one of the earlier questions around how utilities are going to navigate their way through this transition. A system operator has great visibility of upstream generation. Yeah. They know every plant that they've got. They know how it's running. They know where it's at. They know how much capacity they've got. But they're running pretty much blind on the demand side. Natural equilibrium between the two, system inertia, there's a, a few other terms here. But the fact is that we need to open up the demand side, the visibility to the demand side to improve the relationship between generation and, and consumption. And there's, a, there's an old adage in the, um, in the, the DER space, first you've got to lose the weight before you buy the new suit, right? And the fact is, so to your point, it doesn't matter how big the plant is. If, if your demand side is, is a fraction of that, you, you're just wasting not just the energy, but the resource itself. 
Yep, absolutely. That story needs to get told, and it's not yeah. being told. I'll geek out for just a second because I know I yeah. mentioned the, the system inertia thing here, and there there is a um, a bit of a play for me in this because I think as we do you know, sort of embark on this pursuit of decarbonizing our grids, the, the fact is we're deploying the single most disruptive generation technology into that 140-year-old system, and that's intermittent renewable generation. The fact is, is that we, when you don't have good visibility of the demand side, but you have really good visibility of the supply side, and all of a sudden, oh, now the, the supply side is intermittent, how do you maintain system stability? How do you maintain that um, system resilience and reliability? And the, the fact is that it's very, very difficult. And we've got to be careful that as we, we, we pursue this transition and as all the technology comes together, and that's why I looked at sensor sweaters that, you know, that, that conduct that, right? It's you have to have a flexible and visible demand side to ensure that when you disrupt your supply side, you can still maintain that system inertia. And that's, that's really where we thought the, the long game for me as a business like Census Suite is positioning ourselves to, to be that, not only the, the conductor, but the, the person who can sort of bring that all together. That's going to be a bit of fun. For someone who understands current systems, for me, it sounds like you need a big buffer vessel between your supply and demand side, right? <laughs> to manage the well, yeah, swings yeah. in demand. Absolutely. And the fact yeah. is, if you, if you look at most of the, the, the large outages that we've seen yeah, over the course of the last 20 years. I mean, the 2003 outage up here, that that was driven by a frequency event. It, yeah. you know, it, it culminated in a, you know, a cascade sort of blackout of a huge amount of system assets. But the fact is it was frequency. That's what kicked it all off. That was with great visibility of the demand side, huge rotate, rotational sort of forces in those, those large generators. You need advanced power electronics to replicate that. And you need flexibility. And you, you don't get that in upstream generation. You get that in the, in the demand side with all the new technology that's coming out now. Yeah, interesting. I see, like, obviously, there's a huge need for partnerships with companies like yourselves and current production providers, power production providers. But at the same token, they don't want to have partnerships with you. They could, because they, in many ways, they, you know, it could, because it's, yeah. you know, so how do you, as a business leader, deal with that because it's like working with your enemy and uh, but at the same time they're a source of your income you're, you're or you're certainly you're, they're part of the future for you yeah and then the other thing is that with there's so many players around obviously at some point there's going to be a merger of operations mm. companies coming together so yeah it's a two-part question how do you deal with the enemy you're working with and how do you deal with all the other small players that are also out there I kind of like, I go with the don't hate the player, just play the game better than everyone else, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. The fact yeah. like um, real world experience here where I was speaking to an industry organization here in Ontario who just received a letter from a, a large upstream generator who shall remain nameless, which was uh, asking them to support a paper they were going to present to the ISO that would basically position DERs in a, in a negative light. And I sort of said, well, why do you think they'd want to do that, do you think? Oh, I don't know. Maybe DERs are just bad. They're not good for, for the system. Like, well, okay, maybe, well, maybe let, me, let me present an alternate sort of reality here in that if you deploy one megawatt's worth of generation at the grid edge, where do you think that one megawatt of value is removed from? And that little light bulb between. Like, yeah, that's exactly it. So it's just it's just an extension of, of that that obstructionist play. So, so a lot of these guys have pretty deep pockets. Now, I'm not saying that yeah. they're, they're not looking at the new technology, but in the interim, they do not want to lose any of that value. 
right? So you just got to watch out for the snake in the grass. And sometimes you, you just might be paying that snake in the grass a, a weekly amount to keep your lights on. But to the point, going back to sort of my, my orchestra sort of analogy here is the fact that there, there are a lot of soloists in the industry. We've got to come together to create that, that symphony, right? Yeah. So partnerships are fundamental to the transition. And, and in fact, I, I just on a phone call prior to this, to the show being recorded, where a gentleman was saying, look, I've got some IP. I've seen what you guys do. I think there's some, some crossover. There might be some competitive rub, but do you want to have a look at it? Like, by all means. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for looking at something, a partnership where that crossover in IP raises value for both companies. With that sort of philosophy in mind, then you really can't go too wrong. But yep, we'll always be to that point where we're all grown ups. And if we just find out we are direct competitors, well, hey, shake hands and say it was worth a try. But the fact is that there's going to be a lot of roll up. There's going to be a lot of acquisition in the space over the coming decade. What this energy industry is going to look like at the end of the 2020s, no one will recognize it from today. But you will see some some big companies mm. rolling up. You've already got the likes of the Googles out there. You've got the likes of the Navigants and a number of others who are already working on their vision of the smart city. And at the at its foundation is smart energy infrastructure. Don't for a second think that you know, if, we, if we look at potential exits of, you know, in this industry, I think there's going to be a lot of household names mopping those companies up over time. I mean, it takes a massive player who sort of operates at the scale of a nation state, like someone like Google, for example, mm. is the best example probably. If yeah. they actually make a hard move into this space, it's a wrap, right? It's done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 They already understand the consumer in the space. Yeah. In contrast to when, you, look, when you're in a monopoly in the utility game, look, you don't treat your customers as anything other than connections. Yeah. You just that monthly clip the ticket and a bill. These these consumer-based businesses have already got their head around the fact that the consumer will make buying decisions and they understand the science behind those decisions. Yeah. So they're already positioning themselves to be that cool energy partner for like a better term of choice. And you know, the, the, when was the last time you looked at a, an energy utility and went, yeah, that's it. I want to work for those guys. Call <laughs> 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 me Dougie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and case in point for myself, like I, I go back to my origin story when I said when I started off at Genesis back in New Zealand, I got a Dear John letter after returning from a trip to Greece. It was a, hey, thanks for applying for a job. You haven't been successful. And I flicked an email back saying, oh, look, no worries. Any, any feedback would be great. But um, if anything else opens up, within four minutes, I had a, an email back saying, hey, the person we picked didn't work out. Can you come in for an interview? I'm like, oh, for the... I, even at that <laughs> point, I'm like, yeah, yeah, it just sounds so boring. <laughs> I really yeah. don't know if I, I wanted And I was this close to just you know, going back and having a nap after 37 hours to get back from Greece, but it was the best move I ever made. And as you say, wrapping it up, I'm uh, lucky to, you know, lucky than good any day. We'll go with that. If we're talking energy, we've got to talk, got to have a very quick discussion about nuclear before we wrap up. Right? Mm-hmm. So yep. I'm a big fan of the French, well, mostly they're women, but they have something like 70, 75% of their electricity generation is nuclear. And mm-hmm. those were decisions made a generation ago or two, right? Yep. But consequently, in this day and age, they are one of the lowest carbon mm. economies in the world, right? So yep. now the nuclear technology they're using is probably old. The nuclear mm-hmm. technology that's around now, is it Ethereum? I can't remember the name of it, something with T. Anyway, mm-hmm. so if we were, if we could just magically start from scratch here in Canada, mm-hmm. would the optimum solution look like nuclear generation at scale, mm-hmm. right? And then these super intelligent grids all interconnected, 
So you've got this mm. constant AI interaction between supply and demand. So you've got green power generation, and then you're managing that generation based on feedback from local solar and PV mm-hmm. generation, right? Yep. Would that be the optimum if you could wave your wand? I say yes, because like fundamentally nuclear generation is one of, if not one of the cleanest, as you've mentioned. Yeah. And um, well, I say one of the, the better generation technologies. The biggest issue with nuclear is, and I'll ask this question of both of you, do you want a nuclear generator in your backyard? No, but you can put them in, I mean, if the transmission is there, where are nuclear plants now? Or where are big generation plants now, right? Why couldn't they be swapped out? Well, it's not that they couldn't be swapped out. I think what you're seeing now is is the new version of the technology and the, the small modular nukes yeah. um, that are now sort of coming to the fray. And they're scalable, um, right? They can scale yeah. on demand, right? Yeah, that's right. And the, the thing with that is, like I said, I, I want to split the, the technology from the image. The technology, I think, yeah, like I'm sold on the technology. Yeah, and if you could, if you could wave a wand and start with, you know, everyone has a baseload generation fleet of nuclear, and then you round out your peaks with um, storage plus renewables, like Nirvana. The fact is that most of the generation fleet is old, and we're going yeah. through some refurbishments now. I seriously doubt whether we'll see any new nuclear plants, larger upstream ones, built again, because the reputational state around nuclear is just so poor you know the, the, the likes of even you know the shows like um, Chernobyl that have just come back it just keeps re, it oh, keeps Chernobyl fueling. is the most disturbing show I've seen in a long time exactly yeah. but the thing is we have to understand like for, for energy people who understand at its core how safe it is how efficient it is how, how fundamentally good it is it's a marketing yeah. problem though right it's a PR it problem yeah that's it. I mean, like at the, at the end of the day, I'm, I might be the best dancer on the dance floor, but I got a face for radio guys. <laughs> like it doesn't yeah. matter. My my thing is, I'm not going to get picked up before the good looking bloke next door. And the fact is that with the energy industry, we have to understand that most people are oblivious to anything other than the bill. Yeah. And the sound bites and the news bites that they see on the news. And you know, look, you just got to look back a couple of weeks where everyone woke up on a Sunday morning to a, an alert that there was an accident at a power station and a nuclear power station. Now, the <laughs> reputation <laughs> image, yeah, 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 off the back of that, yeah. that's the sort of thing I just don't know if nukes can jump that shark. I just don't know if they can. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is that painless and fast onboarding process. That team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, Go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one six one two four six zero eight three zero five. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. And now back to the show. 
so who who in the world is doing well at what you're this sort of future you're developing and describing? There's a lot of people who have had the concept for some time. And look, I'll go back to a video that I saw that came out when I first started in this game from British Gas. And it was their vision of the energy future. And it really was just an, an interconnected home. It, it had every, every element of that home that consumed energy was interconnected and it just ran in the background. Yeah. Right? So I think there's a lot of companies out there with a great vision. But the issue is, again, I go back to the soloists. There's a lot of specialists in the space. And we've yet to see the true value of a lot of these assets yeah. through aggregation. And that's where, you know, I can point to the likes of Eon out of Europe, like British Gas and Centrica, Direct Energy's business, you know, their, their um, solutions division do a lot of this good stuff. But it is predominantly at a commercial industrial scale because that's where it made the most economic sense. What we're seeing now is a transition to that next step down in the, in the system to the grid edge and yeah. will be to the smaller business, the small to medium business area will adopt it next. And then ultimately when it hits the, um, the residential environment is when you start to see businesses that you wouldn't have thought of you know, today are really come to the fray. But I think a, there are a lot of good examples around the world. I really, I don't know if I can point to anyone other than, Look, I will probably point out Sunrun in the US, who've done a great job at turning a solar-based, you know, rooftop solar business now into a company that is aggregating load on the demand side to provide ancillary market services. I think they mm-hmm. won a, um, an ancillary, was it a, an auction in New England recently. Now, it's just, that's great to see because now you're actually developing the technology to really bring that, that full demand side together to provide system services. But there aren't many. Yeah, and in fact, yeah, when I, when I look at yeah, when we go through, yeah, so our process we're, we're raising funds and speaking to investors, they're all after that. Who's your direct competitor? Who who do you compete with? And like, well, if we talk about thermostats, yeah, I compete with a, a few people on directly on thermostats. So thermostat one, thermostat two. The fact is, I'm, I'm building a platform, so I, I can't sort of say like if I'm selling cars, you've picked out the tires. Okay, well, who are you competing with in tires when I make cars? It just, it's, it's not a yeah. fair sort of comparison, but they struggle because there are no comparable companies out there. And if they are, they're really, really hard to find. So there are not too many of us who are at this level. I mean, I can speak to a couple that I um, came up and who I was looking at from New Zealand, uh, old, uh, Josh Wong at, at Opus One. Companies like that who are really plowing through into the smart grid sort of space. Those are the ones that really drew, drew my attention. And there are a number of those out there, but again, at scale, uh, it's it's hard to point to a to a, a big name. That's interesting. I mean, Australia as a country are probably quite advanced in what they're doing. Yes, in the specific areas. Because when you start looking at the transition they've gone through, and I'll pick here specifically on that rooftop solar deployment. Yeah. So some fun facts: the first million homes that were deployed, I think, for rooftop solar had a combined capacity of about two point nine gigawatts of of combined capacity. The second million was five point nine gig of combined capacity so the same amount of homes but now you've, you've in excess doubled that capacity yeah. and they're all being paired with storage so you've got some really good ip out of there of how a how to build the systems how to integrate those systems into an energy market or into an energy grid so there's a lot of really cool stuff and then they sort of going down the path of when you have all this stored energy and you start looking at you know, the uber of energy or, or whatever term you want to use and there's some really neat businesses looking at how do they aggregate that stored value coming out of Australia as well and you're looking at the sort of distributed ledger and billing yeah. um, structures. So there's, there's a lot of that sort of stuff, but at infrastructure level, I would probably say, no, there's not a lot of neat stuff going on. Tesla's big battery in South Australia would be a, a, a notable exception. Yeah. 
But I think a lot of the cool stuff that's coming out of there is is how to really extract more value out of what is effectively um, a dormant energy. It's, it's stored, waiting there to be right. used. Right. And you're seeing some really cool business models coming out, looking at ways to aggregate that and monetize it. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. You know, Brent, I have a uh, couple of questions for you. One for sure, and that is, and Adam and I, of course, since we started the podcast, have been trying to bring the other strong voices from out in the wilderness and into the, into the discussion. And one of those voices, of course, is the female voice. And we've had some great women on our podcasts. We've had great advice over the years, over the, you know, our interviews for women coming into the industry. Adam made reference to the French, some French women, you know, Joan of Arc, Maria Curry, two well-known French women that changed the way we look at things. Are there mm-hmm. any women in this sector that are coming up that have a voice play a way to influence what you're doing? There's quite a few here. Yeah. This is one of the luxuries of working in a, in a place like Canada, right? I mean, this, this, is, this is a global melting pot, not just for races and cultures, but yeah, in between the sexes as well. So I think the energy industry is, I'm not going to say spoiled for choice because you, you can not be you can never be too spoiled when you've got talent rolling around. But mm. There are a number of people out there with high-quality talent, regardless of sex. I think Canada is lucky enough to have a, a lot of really, really talented women in the space. Yeah. They certainly have inbuilt ability to work. I think Adam and I have had these discussions before. Mm-hmm. Work better in teams and sort of breaking down barriers that exist mm-hmm. sometimes because of men and just our own characteristics. And I just see that, uh, yeah, that there's a lot of break- <laughs> <laughs> Well, there just seems like there's a lot of barriers in this marketplace that need to be broken down. And I just see that having women who have that ability to break those barriers down would just serve mankind, a bad choice of words, you know, people kind in a better way than what we do, you know? Yeah, look, I'm going to run with this as a um, sort of some commentary around that. So I pulled together a list of people that I consider to be incredibly sophisticated when it comes to sort of market fundamentals, market structures, and whether that be from you know, how upstream generation attaches to transmission grids, whether it be you know, battery storage and how that sort of you know, supports different things. But the fact is I brought about 12 people together in a, in a personal sort of mentor group. And of that, eight of those people are women. Fantastic. Yeah. In that there, when you when I look at it, and it's not because I went out saying, I, I need to you know get a woman's perspective on it. It's because I went out looking for the best people. Yeah. And as I say, it's just <laughs> yeah, that's spoiled, awesome. spoiled for choice. And, and it's not just based in Canada. I've, I've looked you know, at my connections around the world. And it just so it happens that the women that I'm talking specifically, they're looking for what's next. They've got a vision that, you know, I would say not aligns with mine, but you know, we come from similar stock, we'll say it that way. But we're all focused on one thing, and that is um, you know, leaving this planet in a better place than we found it, just doing a bit to move that needle back one notch. Yeah, and if, yeah. You know, maybe there might be something in there that's sort of skewed slightly one way than the other with our women friends. But the fact is that I love the conversation. I'm, I'm probably unique in the fact that I've got 26 female cousins and three male cousins, two daughters. Yeah, Mother Nature was designed me to be a, a girl dad. So. <laughs> and imbalance there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love the fact that you said that you were looking for the best people and what percolated up was what, what percolated up, yeah. right? which was able to That's fantastic yeah. because I really believe in true equality not selective mm-hmm. equality when it's suited mm-hmm. right so you should always look for the best person hopefully that's someone you want to work with yeah. right the fact that yep. 
we're now in an age where men and women both percolate up in members. That mm. is real progress, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I yeah. mean, I, I look back at my career and look, I've, I've had the luxury to work with some incredibly talented people and the learning experiences I've gained from some of the less talented people. <laughs> You know, I, I just like I say I, I'm a lifelong learner, and I, I don't care if you wear a skirt or a pair of pants. It doesn't really matter if I can learn something from you. you you're a friend of mine. That's the old Steve Jobs thing, right? You're either a zero or one. You're either good for me or you're not. <laughs> I don't care anything else, yeah. right? You got it. <laughs> and there's there's a purity to that, and yeah. a simplicity to that that absolutely works, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I couldn't agree more. So look, Big, I want to be respectful of your time. Actually, we're coming up to the end. You you got one more question, Robert? Well, it was going to be one of the end questions for we asked for all of our guests. And again, it goes back to my question with women in the industry. If you had to give a graduating lecture, you know, you're there at the podium and you're talking to the women in the industry, Mm -hmm. graduating from universities and colleges around the world, what would your advice be to these people as it relates to your market segment? I'm going to run with, I'm assuming that I'll be giving a presentation to people and women who would be looking at the energy sector as a um, as an industry yep. to get into. And I would stand up and applaud them for, for just making the right decision. The fact is that they've jumped on board this ship at the outset of this transition. You know, there's a reason they're calling it the fourth industrial revolution. We, I don't think we'll see this again in our lifetimes mm-hmm. or in, in the next one, perhaps. But the fact is, is um, well done. Buckle up! This is going to be a fun ride, and uh, you you've got a wealth of opportunity ahead of you. There are no dumb yes. ideas. Come together with that and uh, some of the technology, and you know, I think you're going to have a lot of fun. I love that answer. Thank you for that. Yeah. Okay, so I've got one rapid fire question for you. What would you say to a to a Doug who was uh, like pushing back on you? Yeah, so just retired. for our listeners, remember that's a dumb old utility guy. <laughs> Get out of the yeah. way. Uh, <laughs> I, do you have an option to take early retirement? <laughs> yeah, that's it, mate. Yeah. That's exactly yeah, I love it. Win-win. That's awesome. That's the guard. Great point to end on. So, Glenn, thank you very much for coming on. That was fascinating. I always think it's hard to make energy an interesting conversation, but it so is, right? You know, yeah, you is. Talk like, about... People, nuclear technologies, new technologies, the internet of things. There's so much going on. Well, yeah, but I don't want to drink too much of my own Kool-Aid there, Adam, because the fact is that between us, it is cool. Yeah. If I go with how many barbecue conversations I killed last year, yeah, when right. asked the question, <laughs> what do you do for a job? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think it's cool. And, um, you know, I tell you what, um, the, the people I mix with right now certainly do think as well. And I think we just get the chance to introduce a lot more people to its coolness over the coming years yeah you need totally. a don draper on staff you need a marketing man <laughs> you got it you got it okay i'm gonna thank you very much for coming on i really enjoyed it we'll keep in touch and uh, best of luck with sense of suite and everything you're doing thanks gents thanks for the opportunity have a great day adam that was another interesting uh, conversation and you know what i liked about uh, glenn is obviously he sat back and looked at the energy in, uh, industry and particularly power production, power grids, demand side, production side. He's made some really great comments, you know, in terms of the age of the grid and who's managing that old, old system. And one of the acronyms he had was Doug, yeah, which that. was dumb old utility guys. And, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're out there, but they're out there in lots of different industries. But, yeah. you know, when we talk about power production and energy, 
obviously there's a change happening and he's observing it and he's trying to find on behalf of his company and his shareholders a way to navigate this. What he's trying to do is difficult, right? And there has to be someone to take on difficult things, right? And that's how we got to the moon. That's how things are developed. But it's a tough job. But I loved his observation about protect and obstruct. You could apply that at so many levels in the property business, right? Yeah. Because the dogs are the utility version of, for instance, trades that don't want to change, right? Just the movement to modular and off-site construction is a struggle. Why is that? Because there's a protect and obstruct culture that says, I've always driven down the highway to my projects and I work all day on site and I go home, right? Yeah. Why would I want to change that? And yeah, I, I get that. If I've been doing that for 30 years, I don't want to change that. But you know, at some point, the property industry has to evolve, right? The, the forces of change around it are building so high. And it's interesting too, because I get to work with you know some utility guys that I wouldn't call Dougs. Many of them understand the circumstances that we're in as a society. And we know that there's obviously a demand for energy. And they're trying to find a way on behalf of their organizations to, again, navigate through these changes. And part of it is, is working with developers, industry associations, trying to reduce demand on systems, and at the same time, optimize whatever energy gets converted to optimize that use. So there are individuals within you know, old guys that actually, you know, that have been around that, are, that understand their role and are trying to do best by society. On the other hand, there's a lot of people in, at leadership levels that fall under that acronym of TUG. There's no doubt about it, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So we can't characterize everybody within the utility company. No, no. To take the, the flip side of a DUG, right? So they're derided as DUGs because there's a little bit of jealousy there, right? They're in a right. job where they work regular hours. They get a great defined benefit pension. And if people understand money, that is the freaking gold standard, right? An inflation-protected guaranteed pension when you're old. I mean, them things are not going to be available to our children. So there's a bit of jealousy there. But also there's a larger knowledge as well, right? The challenge is how do you separate the good from the bad and then from the good, get that knowledge and somehow bank it and make it useful, right? That's the challenge because with 30 years experience comes such a lot of ingrained knowledge and expertise. Somehow you've got to codify that and pass that on. You know, I've had the chance to work with some people from Direct Energy uh, and also BC Hydro. And both of those organizations have people within their, within their ranks that are exactly who you're talking about. You know, they've got some really great experience and good ideas, and there will always be a place for them at the table because they have this, this ability. So, yeah, I, it's an interesting place. He um, made some other comments, which we've talked about before, and actually you brought it up many times, the, the idea about stranded assets. Yeah, that is a big thing. Yeah, every time I hear that word, I get worried. Do you know what that might look like 50 years from now is everyone's driving along going, oh, look, there's electrical pylons. That used to be a thing. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, with efficiency in power transmission and changes in grid structure, you know, the same way the, when I grew up in the UK, in certain parts of London, there used to be what are called gas monitors, these massive gas storage, circular gas storage tanks, and they went up and down as the gas was in them, and they were just there, and they were a feature. They're probably dangerous as hell, right? If I'm going to blow up, I'd take out a whole block, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then in the 80s and 90s, with the move to natural gas, they went away. And they just slowly went away. They were a curiosity, and then they went derelict, and then they just slowly got redeveloped. 
and they poof, they were gone, right? Is that the future for electrical pylons and cables all over the land? Maybe. Maybe. I, you know, it's funny because there's, I was uh, watching a, a site on uh, drones and drones were used to do aerial photography of uh, stranded ships, you know, ships that had crashed onto shore, you know, and they're just rotting away, you know, Mother Nature is taking over. And uh, yeah, someday there'll be a, you know, a video online about uh, drones doing aerial shots of these power plants that are archaic and old and have served their purpose. It's, it's, it's a big problem. And it, I always am encouraged and feel good there's people like Glenn who are willing to take that problem on because quite frankly I've not got the energy or the expertise to do anything oh, like that at my age right <laughs> yeah so change is a young man's game sometimes in fact all the time I'd say you know and I'm really glad people are there to do that it makes me feel good you know what I mean well there yeah I mean retirement comes nicely when you've you've spent your whole life falling on a sword yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm exhausted yeah I'm yeah I'm I am too but <laughs> but but I'm also encouraged by the energy that's there, and no pun intended, yeah. you know, that, the, that young people bring, and then also that women are bringing to the industry. Like yeah. I get pumped up to see that kind of stuff because we fought for it for so long, you know, and we saw some wins in our careers. But I think we're starting to see more and more, which I'm really happy about. And I'm and I was incredibly happy to hear him talk about, you know, his circle of people that he gets to work with, and to have such a large number of women influencing the decisions. I love that. I just, I was really, really excited to hear all of that happen. He made some statements that are also, which were very interesting. Uncool to use gas. I thought that was good. Uncool to use gas. So what he was basically saying was at the moment, it's an upper middle class thing. It's a status symbol, right? Yeah, like, right. You know, it's a, but, you know, as that, as that percolates down, it will become uncool, right? To use gas and uncool to do certain things. I was talking to my daughter about this the other day. She's developing a Porsche obsession like her dad. I said, you do realize one day an old dude like me driving a petrol car driven car will be like the equivalent of an old guy who won't walk around without a gun strapped to his side. Uh, it will be, you'll become a social pariah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're going to be that crazy old guy. Why can't he get an electric car like everyone else? He's stinking the place out with that petrol car. Yeah. He said another thing, which I thought was really good. And we asked him about competitors, you know, don't hate the players, just become a better player. And that has so many applications in life and business and, you know, and we do see a lot of organizations that uh, have hate and resentment and, well, again, you know, it's the protect and obstruct uh, type. But the reality is, is that when you get people who are good at the game, they make change and they tend to be people that sit outside the status quo. We've talked before how you know, what happens when industries get started, that members come together, they create rules, new people come in, they got to play by the rules. And eventually, you know, 100 years later, you've got this entire industry that's built upon rules by the status quo. And so change doesn't happen because if you want to play the game, that game, you got to play by those rules. But it's the people that come outside of the status quo that are better at the game that make the changes. Yeah, damn right. And so I love that statement, you know, don't hate the players or don't hate the status quo. Just get better at what the status quo does and get everybody else to play by the new rules that you're creating, right? That's a great strategy. And I wish them all, anybody that plays by that strategy, I love that. Should win, yeah. I like, I like the macro. The age of gas will give way to the age of lithium storage. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, quite, right? yeah. He, he, maybe he is Don Draper. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
And then his comment about the fourth revolution, and I thought that that was really good because mm. that will see continue on in our lifetime, and we'll be yeah. long gone before something else comes along. But I think he's absolutely right. Yep, absolutely. No, that was uh, that was good. I've I've, felt I've come out of that discussion feeling encouraged by the future. I'm normally positive about the future, anyway, just for the fact that my kids are a lot nicer than me and my generation. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you see things like this and you see the change. It does, it always gives me hope for the future because good things are happening. Even if you don't see them, there's good things going on and yeah, they're away, exactly. they're working away. And it's it's good, man. I'm really positive about the future. Despite everything that's going on, I'm actually very upbeat about what's coming down the pipe. You know, it'll be a struggle, but... Things will get better, I think, and things will develop for the better. I'm, I'm convinced of that. Well, you know, when we were young men and we were doing our thing, and we were very much change agents, and we got excited about the things that we were able to accomplish, and now we're able to sit back and we're able to watch young people do the same thing. And we are seeing young people, young minds, young energy, making the necessary changes for the future and for the better, right? And yeah. hopefully that filters into the political system. It certainly is in the science world. We see it. Like when I think, you know, we get onto the social media and you look at the research work that's been coming out of COVID. These are like 25-year-olds and 35-year-olds doing this research work. These aren't like 80-year-olds or 70-year-olds or 60-year-olds. I mean, there are some guys that are out there and girls that are doing it, but these are young minds trying to solve a problem today that's a, that's a global problem. And they're loving it. The stuff that they're learning, I just, I'm so excited for them, you know? That is, the, that is the big benefit that's never spoken about about the internet is the way it gives people the ability to sidestep the gatekeepers. Yes. you got a great idea. Yeah. Put it up there, right? So there's none of this excuse, oh, I couldn't get a meeting with Fred or I couldn't do this, right? you got a great idea. Put it out there. Let's have a look at it, right? Which is why CNN and Fox News and late night talk shows are all in decline because before you had to kiss their feet to get on there, right? Now... Joe Rogan is the new Johnny Carson, right? And he answers to no one except Joe Rogan. Yeah. There was an episode of Joe Rogan recently where Bill Maher went on there and begged Joe Rogan to go on his show. That was, for me, the moment where podcast, not podcasting, uh, Joe Rogan's is more of a show, like YouTube shows, eclipsed mainstream TV. Yeah. Well, uh, Joe it's... Rogan's show gets downloaded, it gets 10 million downloads a show or something. Is it really? Yeah. Bill Maher's show, and I like Bill Maher's show, I watch it, because you get lots of crazy people on it. You know, he doesn't even get a million viewers. Yeah. I remember when Howard Stern took a big hit and then just basically thumbed his nose at the status quo of broadcasting and said, fine, I'll create my own show. <laughs> you know, shock, jock, right? And today... Like he's, he was one of the early guys just to basically put his thumb up and said, screw you guys. Yeah. He went round the gatekeeper, right? The gatekeeper said, yep, shut that gate. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you're, and you're absolutely right. The internet allows people to sidestep the gatekeepers, which has got to frustrate the hell out of the gatekeepers, right? Oh yeah. yeah. There's a lot of middle managers and executives in TV stations who are really no longer necessary, right? Yeah. It's great to see. And it's great to see, as I said, you know, we're seeing the research come out, the changes come out, the youth and the energy. And yeah, so how can we, you know, this is a, it's a sucky time to be around because of what's happening globally with the, the virus. But at the same time, we're starting to see out of that change agents. And so a really cool time to be an observer. Right? Yeah, it is really. I am so positive about the future. I really am. Yep. 
Yep, yep. Okay, man. So on that happy note, I shall see you on the next one. All right, Adam. See you later. Take care, man. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.